We'll turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading this morning verses 1 through 11. Uh, just a little bit of background uh, to the epistle prior to the reading of Scripture this morning. Uh, the reason that Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians is in part to grant them some comfort, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but also to defend his ministry as an apostle. There were some that were coming into the church and that were speaking against him and undermining his message as well as uh, undermining him as a man. Uh, basically stating that he wasn't really a true apostle because of all the sufferings that he had gone through. Uh, in their minds, a true apostle of God would be better protected than Paul had been. Paul had been through the ringer a, a numerous number of times. And so um, he is responding to that and explaining that he is, you'll see the first two verses, he says, I am an apostle called by God. And he says he's with his, his, his brother Timothy, who's also serving with him. And he's writing this letter for the good of the church in Corinth, but also for the good of the saints and the churches in that whole area, that region of Achaia, which would include Athens and, and Corinth and Delphi and a few other cities that uh, you may know of. One of the primary themes of this letter, though, is, is strength and weakness. So again, the whole point is uh, he's not uh, trying to prove that he is strong, but rather he's admitting his weakness because that's where he finds the true strength of God in Christ Jesus. And so as we read this together, just know that that's a common theme he's going to hit on again and again. So with that being said, let's read together the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help as we read your word, as we meditate upon its meaning and, and how to apply it to our individual circumstances. Lord, we know uh, that our view of this life is quite different from what is laid out for us here uh, in Scripture we ask, Lord, that you would give us the mind of Christ, that you would give us that heavenly perspective, that we would see you as we ought and also see our own situation as, as with the right interpretation. Father, we ask that you would give us more of your wisdom, 
more of your spirit uh, to help us to receive this word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Although most people are somewhat familiar with the Amber Alert system uh, throughout the, the, the world now, um, most people probably are not as familiar with the origin story of the program. In the mid-1990s uh, in the town of Arlington, Texas, a 10-year-old girl named Amber uh, was kidnapped as she was riding her bicycle in her neighborhood. And within a very short period of time, only one person had seen the incident as it occurred and knew that some man had grabbed her off of her bike, put her in the back of this black pickup truck, and drove off, but actually drove into town rather than away toward the interstate to get out of town. So they knew that he was somewhere local, and yet they didn't have a system in place to put people on the alert. And so for about four days, they searched and searched with no success until finally they found her body in a, in a, in a creek, lifeless. And uh, you can imagine uh, Amber's mom was just overly distraught, inconsolable uh, when she heard the news. But as, as time went on, the ache and the anger, that sense of justice just grew and grew because they never found the man. No one ever knew who it was. And to this day, still, no one has found the kidnapper. So when she heard of other parents undergoing the same nightmare that she went through and experiencing that same sense of desperation and hopelessness, she, along with some savvy friends, some uh, government officials, as well as the local radio station, came together to develop what would become known as the Amber Alert System, just for the, the, the town of Arlington but then eventually it spread to all the state of Texas and then the United States and now throughout the world. Every, just about every country uh, has this system in place. Of course, it took a very painful experience in her life to help move her to help others in this way. And so some good came from it. But as you know, as long as we live in a fallen world, there will be many opportunities for evil to rear its head. And we all will undergo many aspects of suffering. Again, we're surrounded by this sense of disorder and, and fallenness. There's, uh, uh, it's everywhere. It's, it's pervasive. But I'll have you know that when we go through any aspect of suffering, it, it's not an automatic sign of God's displeasure. As Job's three friends were constantly trying to tell Job, you've done something wrong. That's why you've experienced these horrible things. Uh, but rather, God is actually using these even very painful times in our lives for some very good purposes if we have the patience to see what comes from it. I, I want to submit to you this morning that the biblical authors never seek to deny or to diminish suffering. I think there are a number of religions in the world that do. They try to ignore it or try to push it aside. Christianity puts suffering front and center. In fact, if you think about it, the whole essence of the gospel is based upon the sufferings of Christ to give us meaning even in our own sufferings. There's nothing pointless about the horrible things that happen to us and the things that happen to our friends. Unlike in the book of Job in which the sufferer never really is told a specific reason by God of why he's going through what he is going through at that moment, we have the benefit of further revelation in the New Testament and through these epistles, such as the epistle to, to the Corinthians, we're beginning to see a greater purpose in suffering. 
that actually points us to the very essence of Christianity itself. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Instead of promising to take away all of your suffering as a believer, uh, the Scripture seems to suggest that suffering is a, is a necessary corollary to our sanctification in Christ. It's a very important point that we can't miss. If we don't get this concept, we will turn toward bitterness and doubt and reject Christ altogether. So this morning, I want us to consider some of the purposes of affliction, particularly in the life of a Christian. There are a number of them, and I'm only going to mention a few of them this morning uh, from the text that we have. But one of the primary purposes that God not only allows our suffering, but in fact orders it, is that we might come to know, to love, and to trust the God of all comfort. Put it this way, um, when you first come to faith in Christ Jesus, you come to know the Lord of life. You come to know the Savior of the world. But you yet don't know the God of all comfort. That only comes as we go through different aspects of affliction, different aspects of trial through our daily struggles. We come to know something of this God who is the God of all comfort, as Paul says here in our text. And so as a result, God purposely will lead us at times into stormy seas. All three of the songs we sang this morning talked about the billows roll, right? Uh, Sometimes he leads us through the stormy seas. Sometimes he leads us through fruitless wastelands as he did with the Israelites after bringing them out of Egypt. Sometimes he purposely leads us even into times of severe affliction that we might know the God who sees, the God who hears, and the God who who acts in our behalf to deliver. The God of all compassion, the God of all comfort. We don't come to know this God unless we go through affliction. In just five verses, the Apostle Paul refers to a number of aspects of affliction, using a number of different terms, talking about burdens, perils, despair, even the sentence of death itself. But on the other side of that affliction, We also find 10 times in these same verses, God is identified as the God of comfort. 10 times offering comfort to those who are in the midst of their affliction. So if you think of it this way, uh, most of us know that 1 Corinthians is the chapter about what? Love. If you want to know the chapter on comfort in Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You want to learn about love? Go to 1 Corinthians 13. You want to learn about comfort? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The only other uh, passages that come even remotely close to the number of times this word is used would be throughout the book of Isaiah, but not all in one chapter, many chapters throughout. But they're all pointing to the future in which God will comfort his people after bringing them through all these afflictions, in that case because of their sin. And so he brought them into exile as a result of their sin, as a result of their Uh, spiritual adulteries. Uh, But he kept promising that one is coming. The consolation of Israel is coming. The comforter is coming, all pointing to Christ. And so now Paul is unveiling that comforter unto us. So, of course, all three persons of the Trinity in Scripture are known as the comforter. The Father's called the comforter. The Son's called the comforter, as well as the Holy Spirit. But in this particular instance, Paul is referring to the Father's comfort as it's given to us through Jesus Christ. So if you look in verse 3, he begins with this Jewish benediction, a way many uh, synagogue benedictions began, in which he's giving thanks to the Father, but he gives it a particularly distinctive Christian character. 
and by saying that now this comfort is from the Father but flows in His Son to us. Because we have been adopted into the family of God, the same comfort that God, the same love and compassion that He gives to His own Son, He now gives to us as sons and daughters of God. So He has that deep care and concern for His people. Uh, just as, as Jesus is the apple of His eye, we too become God's darlings, if you will. And He gives us that same sense of love, that same sense of comfort that He would give to His own Son. But again, in order for us to experience that, to know that, we have to taste something of affliction in order to taste something of that heavenly comfort and to learn to find our contentment and our complacency in the bosom of Christ, if you will, as we rest in His power, rest in His wisdom, rest in His goodness to bring something good out of our sufferings. That's one purpose. That's not the only purpose. Uh, God also uses our sufferings that we might learn how to comfort others in their afflictions. If you recall from uh, the book of Hebrews in our sermon series, um, Jesus, even in his own humanity, in order to learn how to sympathize with us in our weakness, he too went through various trials and temptations so that he could be that great sympathetic high priest and be able to give us mercy in time of need and give us comfort and care. Surely it's the same for us. We only learn how to comfort others after we've gone through affliction ourselves and have found the comfort of God in our afflictions. And as we grow in our faith, we become more skilled in that ability, more zealous to share God's comfort with others. That's exactly how it works. So verse 4, Paul says that God comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We don't need to experience the exact same afflictions that our brother or sister in Christ is experiencing, but we do need to know what it's like. And we do need to know how to look to the God of all comfort to help us in those situations. You know, when I was in seminary, um, I was required to take at least a couple of classes in counseling. And they were helpful. They, they, they teach you a number of Scripture verses that you might use in, in helping someone out of a particular situation, maybe a couple techniques, certain questions to ask, all those things. But none of those things are a substitute for going through affliction yourself and then learning how to trust God so that you can point them by testimony that there is hope here, you see. Uh, it, it's, it's a world of a difference when you've actually spent time with the wonderful counselor who has comforted you in your afflictions. And then you can share that with others. It's interesting that the Greek word that's translated as affliction in this text literally means to, to be pressed down hard, almost as if you're going to be crushed. And it makes me think of that one scene in the uh, Star Wars movie, New Hope. If you remember where Luke and I think Han Solo and, and Leia are trying to avoid the enemy, they jump down that trash chute. Remember that? And all of a sudden, they find themselves in this, you know, very smelly, crowded area full of uh, pond scum, I guess you could say. And, and uh, all of a sudden, they, they find this very large tentacled creature trying to drown them. And then as soon as uh, he leaves, then the walls start to compress and compress and compress to where they're almost crushed. Thankfully, that's not how most of our afflictions are. <laughs> That God doesn't immediately throw us into the trash bin and just let us be crushed and then wait for us to call, cry out for help in that sense. But nevertheless, we see that God does purposely 
uh, bring us into situations one at a time that we learn to look to him for comfort, that we learn to trust him, that we learn to rest in his deliverance. Then in, in thir- thirdly, in, in verse 5, Paul provides a third purpose, that we also might share somehow in Christ's sufferings themselves. He purposely brings us through affliction that we might share in Christ's suffering. He says this, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Of course, he doesn't mean that we're sharing in his sufferings for the forgiveness of sins or for atonement, but rather somehow by making us new creations in Christ, he not only has made us into the image of Christ, but now is beginning to help us take on the mind of Christ. And and for us to do that, we go through the same experiences that Christ does. In order for us to know what it is to have the power of resurrection, we first have to go through the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And that's exactly what Paul prays for in Philippians 3. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. But then he also says, and I want to share in his sufferings. Because, you know, we're stupid like that. We want to suffer, right? He knows that it's only as he shares in Christ's sufferings that he begins to know the rest of the story and begin to truly believe it. It's, it's in our union with Christ as believers. Not only are we identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, but we also begin to identify with him in, in his sufferings. But again, they're not pointless sufferings. They're all used for our good that we might know and love God and be conformed to the image of Christ. This is all for God's glory. So it, it's interesting if you think about it, what's the good of my suffering? What's the benefit of my suffering? It's not always for my benefit. You see, you're beginning to see it's also for the benefit of other people that I can comfort them, but also for God's glory, God's benefit. There's more to the story than just me. Then fourth, our afflictions also to serve to strengthen the body of Christ, His church. Verse six, Paul says this: If we're afflicted. Paul and Timothy saying, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation, and if we're comforted, it is for your comfort. I think that's one of the hardest lessons in the Christian life is that really Christianity is not about me much at all. There's, there's so much of a bigger plan that God has in mind that he's using even my sufferings for the good of the entire church. You ever thought about that? Every affliction that you go through, that you undergo, is not just for your benefit and for your growth, but for the growth of the church. Paul says in verse 6, we've already heard in part that our comfort is meant for the comfort of others, but here's here's the rest of the story. He says that the, the comfort is so that you can be comforted even by our affliction, not just comforted by our comfort. And so, so what Paul is saying here is that his sufferings somehow lead to their comfort. So it would make sense, in his case, Paul's afflictions took place because he's trying to get the gospel to them. Every single time he suffers, it's for their good. But even when he's comforted, that's also for their good. All of it is for them, not just for him. And it's because of this mystical union that we have as the body of Christ. Somehow we're all connected to one another. What you experience affects me. And what I experience affects you, because we're one body, you see. If the hand hurts, does not the rest of the body feel it? Does not the rest of the body know that it hurts? And does it not benefit later when we get that deliverance, that healing? All of us 
benefit together. In fact, uh, most people think of the word koinonia in the Greek, the word fellowship, as something that takes place in a fellowship hall surrounded by food, right? It's not about food. It's about what we share in common. It's about the sufferings that we've experienced in common. It's about the blessings that we've experienced in common and how we both have learned to trust in Christ. We both have Learn to find our hope in Christ. It's that mystical communion. It's a beautiful thing, but uh, it takes time to get that concept. Now, I'm going to I'm going to say something here that I don't I don't want you to misunderstand me. And I've, I've shared this with you before uh, about my sister's passing. I, I told you that uh, when my sister was in her late 30s, she died of cancer. It was very, you know, it was a very sad time. It's it's been a number of years since this happened. I've certainly been greatly comforted by God um, since then. But if I were to tell you that I firmly believe that part of the reason she went through that cancer, part of the reason that she passed in an early age, was so that I might learn how to comfort people. Would that bother you if I said that? Now, granted, I think there are a hundred other reasons why God allowed this event to happen, and even ordered it to happen in this way. He is sovereign after all. Uh, my parents, I think, were challenged in their faith in a, in a very great way. Uh, they both believed that as long as they prayed hard enough, that whatever they prayed for, God was required to give it to them. They think they learned very painfully that that's not the case. You can't make God do what you want. At the same time, it, it, it was a, a blessing in the end for the rest of the family as well, but, uh, but ultimately... I can say that I don't know all the reasons why God took my sister at such a young age, but I do know that it was in the end a blessing and a good that God used for many, many people. Let me put it to you this way. Um, think of it. Uh, the, the prophet Ezekiel, uh, maybe some of you not, aren't as familiar with him and his life, but did you realize that God purposely took Ezekiel's wife to make a lesson to the people of Israel? He purposely killed Ezekiel's wife, to show what would happen to Israel because of their unfaithfulness. And then he told Ezekiel, you can't cry about it. And, and most of us are like, that's just cruel. But you, you realize God has more in store for us than just our individual lives. And that's hard for us to take because we think we're, we are our own gods. We think that we're our own masters and our own lords. But God actually has a plan, and he's using it for our good, if we can see it. Same way, if you remember, God purposely called Hosea to marry a woman who would be a prostitute and who would forsake him again and again to go after other lovers. And God knew that this was going to happen, or perhaps it had already happened and told him to marry her anyway. And Hosea had to experience tremendous heartache because of this. And yet God said, I'm doing this so that Israel might know their unfaithfulness to me. Can you imagine if, if God actually had that happen in your life? <laughs> Think of it this way. God purposely, when uh, Dave was preaching through uh, the book of Jonah, uh, God purposely caused a plant to grow up to provide shade for Jonah, right? But then he also called a worm to come and eat that plant later in the day so that Jonah would be scorched by the sun. And he tells us later on, is so that not only Jonah, but all the nation of Israel would know that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. 
and that God has the right to bring compassion to anyone. So in other words, he's purposely making Jonah go through something difficult that he and all of Israel might know that God is a God of compassion. And then finally, the easiest one to point to you is the sufferings of Job himself. Job's sufferings were not for his own benefit, but for ours. Do you see that? The whole book of Job was written for our edification. Now, again, he learned things from it. Don't get me wrong, but it, it was much more than just his. The story is much more than just about me. And if I can't see that, and I think it's all about me, then I'm always going to misinterpret what God is doing. And I'm always going to accuse God of doing something wrong, something evil. As strange as it sounds, the Lord did take my sister's life to actually bring about good for many people. In fact, Colossians 1, verse 24, Paul says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, referring to the Colossians. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of Christ's body, the church. So why did Paul go through the sufferings? Not for himself, but for the church. So the next time you undergo some unexpected affliction, don't ask the question, why me? Because you're asking the wrong question. Rather, you ought to be asking, what, God, what might God be doing through my afflictions to be a blessing not only to me, but to many people? It's a different question. It's a question that only comes from maturity. But God has a much bigger plan than just my understanding of my own afflictions. Then fifth, our afflictions are also used to teach us patient endurance in the faith. If you look in the latter part of verse 6, Paul says this, God's people are comforted when they patiently endure the same sufferings that Paul himself has undergone. If you really want to mature in your faith, you want to grow fast, the quickest way to grow in your faith is through hardship and affliction. One of the Puritans says uh, that the afflictions are the shortest cut to heaven. If everything is easy in your life, you're never going to be challenged to trust in God. You'll never grow in your faith. It's funny, this winter I have been coaching uh, Joy and Hope's basketball team, so my two daughters and their basketball team, and, and um, been having a, a good time with it. Every now and then uh, I have to step in and play for one of the girls in our practices because we only have nine girls, not ten. So I have to step in and I, I'll play. Now, granted, you know, I'm playing a number of five-foot-something middle school and high school girls. I'm six foot six, and I'm dominating in every way and enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> but I remember seeing a commercial on television, I think a year ago maybe, with Charles Barkley in it. I don't remember what the point of the commercial it is, but there are two teams, and it's little teams of like eight-year-old kids, and they're picking who's going to be on their team, and then one of the kids says, I want Charles. And of course, he's like almost a seven-foot guy who played in the NBA many years, you know, in that sense. And it just makes sense. You would pick the guy who has all the skills in the world. But will Charles Barkley ever improve by playing a bunch of eight-year-old kids? No. And so it's the same way with our, our Christian walk with Christ. It, 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 he's never going to help us grow if we just constantly live the easy life. And everything works out for us, and, and we're just always happy and, and victorious in every way. Rather, he purposely brings us through the difficult things to challenge us, to help us to grow and to patiently endure through those afflictions so that we learn to grapple with God, 
to wrestle with Him in prayer, to rely upon Him. We will not do that if everything is easy. And so God purposely brings us through those afflictions. With each stage of our growth, sometimes the afflictions get a little bit harder. But He prepares us for that next stage. So again, He's not purposely throwing you into a trash chute and leaving you alone to whatever creature is about to attack you. Uh, he's not purposely giving you the, the, the most harsh affliction that you can have, but He does allow you to go through a number of them so that you can grow. So contrary to what you might think, affliction is not pure evil, but rather something that can be used for our good. I like the way Puritan Thomas Watson put it. He said this, There is more evil in a drop of sin than in a sea of affliction. We should be afraid of sin. We should not be afraid of affliction because it actually is a blessing that God uses for our good. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. By this, Paul's not a masochist. He's not, he doesn't say, I enjoy pain, but he knows the benefit of the affliction that he goes through. And so he sees how he's growing in character. He sees how his faith is increasing, how his hope is becoming more and more abundant because of the affliction he's gone through. Understanding that truth, that God not only comforts us, but also sanctifies us through those trials, ought to make us think twice before we immediately ask God, just take it away. Take away my affliction. Take away all my suffering. In fact, even when you pray for others, I challenge you, uh, typical prayers that we offer for anyone who's in the midst of pain and the, anyone who's in the midst of affliction or suffering, what's our first prayer? Take it away, God. Take it away. Should that be the, the only prayer that we pray? I mean, certainly we, we want them to be relieved of their suffering, but is there not perhaps a purpose in the suffering that can also be beneficial to them? Again, I, I don't want you all changing your prayers completely and saying, Lord, make them suffer more. But I'm saying, you know, perhaps we ought to consider it in a different way. I, I think most of us as Christians have a tendency to pray what I refer to as Calgon prayers. For those of you who are a little bit older, maybe you might know what I mean. Late 70s, early 80s reference here, commercial on TV. There's a woman who is uh, very frustrated at the moment. She just got home from work after a hard day with the boss, and then she's stuck in traffic. She gets home, her kid's crying, the dog's barking, and she looks up to heaven. And Calgon is a bath powder, mind you. But she looks up to heaven as if Calgon is a god. And she says, Calgon, take me away. And then immediately you see her in some, looks like Roman bathhouse or something, and she's reclining in luxury in the bubble bath, and all her afflictions have been taken away immediately. I honestly think that's how we, we think of God in how we pray. God, just take it away. And if He does, then... He's a good God. If not, then something how something's wrong. I prayed wrong. I don't know what I did wrong. But God does actually have a purpose even in our affliction. And as a result, sometimes He does not give us immediate deliverance. In fact, I'd say oftentimes He doesn't. And yet you think, God's not hearing my prayers. He is. But He has more in store for you than you have in store for yourself. God doesn't Expect us to pray those types of prayers, but rather trust Him for whatever it is that His will unfolds. In fact, if I were to teach you to pray in a different way, you could probably say something like this, Father, I don't know what you're doing, and frankly, I don't like it. It's okay to be honest. 
This affliction's tough. But I also know that you are the God of all compassion. You are the God of all comfort, wisdom, love. And so I ask, Lord, if it be your will, please take this affliction away. But if it's not, and you have more in store for me, Lord, teach me patience in the midst of my affliction. Help me to endure the trial in faith that I might grow more and more in my character and place my hope in you. Help me to trust you. Then six, our afflictions teach us not to rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead, Paul says. Paul shares with them about a particular affliction that he and Timothy experienced in Asia that uh, they weren't aware of. And uh, he told them in, in that particular affliction that he despaired of life itself, feeling as if a death sentence had already been pronounced upon him. Again, this is how he felt. It wasn't the reality, but it's how he felt. It just seemed like there was no hope of escape, no remedy, no comfort. And later on, uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul gives this long list of afflictions and sufferings that he's experienced, but none of them seem to compare with the one that he's expressing here to them at this moment, that he really felt like, uh, I'm going to die and there's no hope for me. And yet in that moment, he says, he learned something about the God who raises the dead. Notice he doesn't say, I learned something about the God who raised the dead, or even the God who will raise the dead, but rather the God who raises the dead. Notice he, he puts it in the present tense. Why the present tense? Uh, it seems to be an allusion to the faith of Abraham uh, that the writer of Hebrews makes mention of in his epistle. If you remember, Abraham uh, was promised all of these great promises, one of which was that he would have a son from his own loins through his wife, Sarah, and that through that son, many, many nations would come, right? After he's told this, a little bit later, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on top of Mount Moriah. Do you remember this? Genesis 22, and Abraham goes through with it. He gets the the fire and the, the sticks and, and brings his son along and, and uh, is ready to kill his own son. And the writer of Hebrews helps us to understand in that moment, Abraham's faith was so great, he honestly believed that even after he killed Isaac, God would immediately raise him back from the dead. And Paul is saying something like this. It was only after I had been through that type of situation where there seemed to be no means of escape, no other avenue. God had put me in a place where I could not do anything. I had to trust that in that moment, even if I died, God would raise me from the dead, that God would bring something good from this, and I learned the power of Christ in the midst of my affliction. Can you imagine, uh, if you had not gone through any afflictions or any trials, especially those who have walked with Christ many years, could you imagine your faith being very strong if you had not gone through those things? It's only as you go through those things that you really believe in the power of God. You really believe that God is a wise God, that He's a compassionate God and a holy God. It only, it only in those situations do we really get it. I mean, any of us can now say, I give lip service. Okay, well, I know that I'm supposed to believe in the God who raises the dead. But until you actually go through it, that faith is very weak. 
And so he purposely brings us through the affliction so that we can see not only is God the God of compassion, but he's also the God who can even raise the dead. Then seventh, you're thinking, how many does he have? Seventh, our afflictions also are used to set God's people to prayer. In that close communion with the members of the body of Christ, believers not only share a common faith, but we also share in one another's sufferings. Part of that is through our conversation with one another. Paul expects us in Philippians chapter 2 that at any moment when we come together as a church that some of us have a word of comfort. Some of us have a word of encouragement. Something, a time we spent with God in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we have something to give to one another. But in addition to that, the Spirit also works through us to set us to prayer. When one of us is suffering, when one of us is hurting, God uses it to turn our prayers to heaven. In fact, I love the way he actually says it in the Greek. He doesn't actually say he sets many uh, people to praying, but rather it, it says in the Greek that through this affliction, many faces are turned toward heaven. So all of a sudden you see these people and all of a sudden all these faces are looking up and they're praying to God, Lord, help my brother, help my sister in Christ. And something happens from that. There's a power that takes place through that. Paul says in verse 11 to the Corinthians in the midst of his affliction, you also must help us by prayer. Must help us? (laughs) They're hundreds of miles away in another land. What good is their prayer going to do? And yet, he thinks it's going to do something. Philippians 1.19, Paul says, I know that through your prayers, the help of the Holy, Holy Spirit, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Again, hundreds of miles away from where he's at, he firmly believes that if God's people are set to prayer, it will affect something. It will result in his deliverance. He not only believed in the power of God's resurrection, he believed in the power of Christ's church as they're praying together for his behalf. But it also sets them, after making their petition to God, it also then causes them to give thanks to God when God answers their prayer. Uh, don't forget this passage is an extended giving of thanks. He, it's, a, it's a blessing, but it's a blessing of thanksgiving unto God for comforting Paul in the midst of his afflictions. And yet, he's saying this to them because he knows that as he shares it with them, and they, they see that their prayers have been helpful in his account, that they too are giving thanks to God and God gets the glory. So again, if I were to ask you, why am I suffering? I'm suffering for my own benefit, for my own sanctification, that I would learn a number of things about God, but I'm also suffering for the sake of the church. The church would grow in their faith and grow in their understanding of prayer. And I'm also suffering for the sake of God and His glory. Because whenever I'm going through that affliction and whenever I see deliverance of God, not only do I give thanks, but so do the people of God. And it redounds to the glory of God. It's not about me. It's much bigger than me. Now, if I were to ask you, would you be willing to undergo great suffering for that purpose, for someone else's benefit? (laughs) Maybe not. But you know, that's exactly what Christ did. And if we're learning to take on the mind of Christ... We too are willing to lay down our life for the sake of our brothers. We're willing to endure any aspect of affliction and suffering for the good of our brothers. That's what he's teaching us here. But it's not just for them. I'll I'll say this, uh, for those of you who are very selfish like I am, it does come back to you. Uh, Almost as if it's like a circle, you know. 
God uses the, my afflictions to help this person, to help this person, to help this person, and then somehow it comes back to me. Uh, it, it's interesting if you later on in the seventh chapter of this epistle, after showing and sharing his afflictions uh, with the Corinthians, and he tells them um, that. Well, let me start over. <laughs> I want to make sure I get the circle right. The first letter he gives them, he's trying to comfort them and encourage them, right? And they're comfort and they're encouraged. But then he he shares with them that that they had encouraged, then encouraged Titus, who had come to visit with them. And then as a result, Titus then came from spending time with them back to Macedonia to where Paul was, and then Paul was encouraged by Titus's encouragement, by their encouragement, by Paul's encouragement. You follow me here? So it comes back, and then he's encouraged, and he's blessed by all of these other blessings of encouragement and comfort that they have received from him. Let me give you an account that might make more sense of this for you. Um, most of you are familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps. Uh, he was the German theologian who was later killed for his plot against Hitler. Uh, he firmly believed that Hitler just needed to be taken out, and so he was a part of that team that tried to do that. So uh, long story short, he was imprisoned as a result of his attempts. And from prison, he wrote a number of letters. In one of those letters, he wrote a poem for his wife, Maria von Weidemeyer, and it was entitled New Year, 1945. And just before he was hung, he wrote these words. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving even to the dregs of pain, at your command, O Lord, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by your loving hand. All right, now, it may have moved you, maybe didn't. 18 years later, that same poem is read across the Atlantic Ocean by another bride-to-be who's just lost her fiancé. She found much comfort in that poem that Bonhoeffer had written. So she shares it with her fiancé's parents because they've just lost their son. Now, one of those parents is the famous writer Joseph Bailey, who then included that poem in one of his books about heaven. Follow me still? Tracking with me? All right. Twelve years later, after he wrote it in that book, or 30 years now after Bonhoeffer's death, a pastor friend of Bailey's, who's now living in Massachusetts, read this book, was comforted by that poem, and then gave that book to a terminally ill woman in a hospital in Boston, who also found great comfort in that poem, but it wasn't the first time she read the poem, for that woman was Bonhoeffer's wife. As she was on her deathbed, someone had brought her the same poem that her husband had written 30 years ago. And those were the last words that she heard before she passed. Full circle comfort. You see what I'm saying? The story is so much bigger than you and me. God is doing a lot of things in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of moving parts. And he uses all of that for our good and his glory. So, yes, indeed, God has many designs for our afflictions, and I haven't even covered half of them. But I want to encourage you, don't despise your sufferings. For in them the Lord is accomplishing great good, not only for you, but for his church and for his glory. And all God's people said, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us Help us in our lack of faith. Help us in our selfishness.
Help us in our foolishness and our ignorance. We think that we know You. We think that we know Your ways when Your ways are not our ways and Your ways are infinite. You have so many ways in which to carry out Your perfect will. Lord, help us to trust You even in the midst of our pain. Help us to see that our afflictions are not pointless. That You don't hate us. That You're not using this to tear us down, but rather to build us up. Even those most painful afflictions in our lives. Even those are sanctified to our good and for Your glory. Help us to rest in that truth. Help us to cling to the God of all comfort, we pray in Jesus' name.